Now is the time to worship Come Now is the time to give your heart Come Just as you are to worship Come Just as you are before your God Come So come Now is the time to worship Come Now is the time to give your heart Come Just as you are to worship Come Just as you are before your God Come And one day every tongue will confess you are God One day every knee will bow Still the greatest treasure remains for those Gladly choose you now One day every tongue will confess you are God One day every knee will bow Still the greatest treasure remains for those Who gladly choose you now Come, now is the time to worship Just as you are before your God, God. Oh, we declare that one day every time we'll confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. And still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. One day every knee will bow Still the greatest treasure remains for those Who gladly choose you now And we gladly choose you now We're here to worship you, Lord We're here to give you all the glory So we come
darkness, Lord, we come before you, God, the light of this world. come to worship you, Lord. come to pour out our lives. You're awesome. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me This heart adore you, hope of a life spent with you. So here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God, you're all together. I'll never know how much 
Lord, we're so thankful that we have you in our lives, that, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that everything finds its purpose and its meaning in you. And I thank you, Lord, that as we gather today, that we can do so as a community together, coming before our Father to experience your grace and your kindness and your goodness and your strength and your encouragement to us. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue on with the service right now, that your presence will be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is the last Sunday in our Faith Promise season, and I want to take you to that very, very famous parable of Jesus, and that's the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is recorded for us in Luke 10. And I think there's a couple of very important points that we need to grasp out of this parable, and that speaks into this time of generosity, and particularly today we want to talk about a generosity of heart. 
and, and just again uh, highlight and underline the reasons for our generosity and the expression of generosity and its value and importance. Um, Luke 10, we begin to read from verse 25. Uh, we, we read this, that on one occasion, an ex- expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And uh, we must understand that uh, the, the, the experts of the law, I know a lot of the translations would just use the word lawyer, and which puts a bit of a different spin for us in our modern day context on what that is. You know, you have a picture of a guy with a briefcase, you know, and that funny clothes and perhaps even with a, a wig or something that's going to a court courtroom to, to be part of some legal proceeding. And uh, when the word here is used, and when it, I like this NIV translation that said uh, expert in the law, who it's referring to is uh, generally that priests who were not on duty in the temple would be mingling with the people uh, in, in everyday life, you know, in the, wherever people were in social events and so on. And they'd be walking around and be available to people to pass judgment on the law and what is lawful for an Israelite and what is not lawful and how the law would be practiced and applied uh, in their lives. And um, these experts of the law were all around, but we find in the life of Jesus that they stayed quite close to Jesus because Jesus made some really bold claims. Jesus claimed that he was the son of God. Jesus claimed that he spoke on God's behalf. Jesus claimed to know how to live a godly life and how to please God. And he taught other people. And and that's why they use the word teacher. You'll see just now when he addresses Jesus because Jesus had influence. So these experts in the law was always around about him. This scene is quite an intimate scene that Jesus is having with his disciples, the 72. But there's this lawyer that's close by because what they were doing is all the time checking up on Jesus to to see if Jesus was teaching according to the law. And, um, and they were often, you know, c- trying to correct Jesus or expose Jesus, like in this situation, to show that Jesus had an inferior understanding of the law, that he wasn't living up to the standard as they've said it. So this expert of the law is just there, roundabout, listening to what Jesus is saying. And then every now and then they would interject and try and, you know, correct Jesus or, or test him, like in this situation. And um, they were judging, basically. What, what everything that was going on, is this lawful? Is it according to the law? And so the scripture tells us here that this, on this one occasion, this expert in the law, this person stood up and uh, wanted to test Jesus. And he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he was really questioning Jesus to say, Jesus, what do you say would give, uh, get us into the kingdom of God? What would you say is the standard? What is it that we must do? And it's important here to, to notice that the emphasis in on doing, not on believing, but on doing. What must we do to inherit eternal life? What, will, what is the requirement according to you to get into to God's kingdom and to please God and to, to live up to God's standard? Sort of what is the minimum requirement of action? Is it, what do you say we must do to inherit eternal life? And, and this was a test because the lawyer was trying to see if Jesus is setting the same standard as they were setting. Or is he living up to their expectation or not? Or is he teaching the crowd some lesser standard or different standard? Because they, in their minds, it couldn't be a higher standard that Jesus was setting because they were the standard. But is it that possible that Jesus is setting some lesser standard of what is right and what is wrong? And so they were testing him. 
And then Jesus, you know, as he so often does, when a question is asked, he asks a question right back. And, and so he asks this, uh, this man that just asked, what must, I, must, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what is written in the law? What do, you, what do you see is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus asks him. In other words, he's actually asking the man, what is your interpretation of the law? What is it that, that you hold as the standard? He answered the, the expert in the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so basically what the man did is he, he quoted from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, which is the first part there where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he added Leviticus 19 verse 18, which is the second part, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he quoted Old Testament law. And, uh, uh, and, and fascinating, you know, in that law, just to remind us that it says all so many times. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And so it's this idea of whole life. Be a disciple, a follower of, of Jesus with everything you have. Uh, and a follower of God. Sorry, he wouldn't have said a follower of Jesus, but a follower of God with everything you have. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, therefore, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus meets him right where he is. And, and so far the conversation's going great. The lawyer's testing Jesus and Jesus is answering and they're in agreement. They say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you've said correctly. I agree with you, 100%. We're on the same page. Jesus says, well, just do that and you will live. But that's not enough for the lawyer. And we see how, what the lawyer does next. Here uh, in verse 29, the scripture says, it gives us a clue. It gives us insight into his positioning, his attitude, his motivation in this conversation, but he wanted to justify himself. So the reason he was asking this question wasn't so much for the others. It was because he wanted to show that he is on the right side of things, that he is living according to the law, that he is right in his lifestyle and in his standing. And because he wanted to justify himself, he said, therefore asked the second question. Remember, his first question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The second question he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Typical expert in the law. He now starts drilling into the fine print and he starts going, yes, we agree on the headlines, but, but what, what do you qualify? What are the T's and C's that you describe as the neighbor? Who, who is the neighbor? Now, to understand this, this questioning, this line of conversation, it really helps us to have a little bit of more understanding as to the context, particularly who this expert in the law was and his positioning and this attitude that he had. Now, it is most likely that he was a Pharisee as an expert of the law. Because of the line of questioning he follows, it's most often, it doesn't say it clearly in Scripture, but it is probably right to deduce that he was a Pharisee. Now, we must understand that the Pharisees were a very important group of people. And as you know it, you see, it, you see them all over the, the New Testament and particularly in the Gospels, you see so much of them. They were this group of people that, um, that were uh, the, the interpreters of the law, of the ones that was describing to people, like I said earlier, that would go around and help people in terms of everyday life, what is right, what is wrong. You know, it's a Sabbath, my, my cow is in a hole, um, 
or, or my, my goat is, has broken a leg, what can I do? What is lawful? What is not lawful? My neighbor you know, has behaved in this way. Is it lawful for me to react in the following way? What does the law require of me? So they, they were these people that were very there all the time, present around the people. Um, they saw themselves as a, as a group of people that really represented and, and carried the law. Not only were they the interpreters of the law, but they were the representatives of the law. They viewed themselves as the ones that were living right according to the law, and that they literally thought that everybody should be like them, that they were the ones that were serious about their faith. They were the ones that were really going for it and living up to God's standards, and therefore they had a bit of a separation. The word Pharisee actually means to separate. They separated themselves from the rest, because they believed that, to, that if you were a Pharisee, you were really living a righteous and good life. And there was this play that you would often see in the New Testament, these words that is used when it often speaks about the crowds. Because part of the, the, the reality of a Pharisee is not only did they, uh, uh, did they view themselves as the representatives of what it means to be righteous, and, and they were sort of the standard. They said, if you wanted to know what it means to be righteous, then look at us and just be like us. And they, they put themselves against the crowds. The, the other people, they were sort of saying, the other people should be like us and we are right and they are, um, are not right. They're not living righteous lives. They're not living the life they should be. They should be like us. And, um, and they were the ones that were, this, that were you know, holding that law and representing that law. Um, to, to a Pharisee, only someone with the same zeal for the law could be called a, a neighbor. This means only fellow Pharisees actually qualified as good neighbors, as people that you could expect to be a good neighbor to you. That would probably be a fellow Pharisee because they were living up to this higher standard of the law. And, um, and this is the view they had. Um, they were esteemed in their community and in the nation of Israel as the most ex ex skillful um, and uh, ones that could explain the law and apply the law. They were also quite revered because they were called and seen as an accessible aristocracy. This is Stein, Saltz, and Frankenstein, uh, Frankenstein, Frankenstein, not Frankenstein, Frankenstein, that said this. Um, and the reason for this is that, that from the elite to the most common person could actually become a Pharisee. All you needed to do was devote yourself to the law, the Torah. If you became a student of the Torah and you devoted your life to the yacht and tittle of the law, to live the law, then anybody could become a Pharisee. It's even noticed that women could become Pharisees. Um, as it is said by the historian Josephus, by whom this set of women were unveiled. So he references an occasion where, where, where women displayed and showed their commitment to the Torah and their zeal for the law and their zeal for, for the, the, the way of the Israelites as they understood it according to the law and therefore were allowed to become part of the Pharisees. So Pharisees was this elite group of people, not because they were birthed elite or by, by any other reason than the fact that they were devoted to the Torah, to the law. And we must always remember that the Israelites, by, by definition, they, they were separated from the other nations because they were the people of the book. They were the people of the law. What defined the nation of Israel more than anything else, what separated them from any other ethnic group was the fact that they lived their lives according to the book, the Torah, the law. That is what um, gave them their identity. They were the people of the book.
And therefore you can understand that the Pharisees were therefore so important because they were right there at the center of everything. The ones interpreting the law, teaching the law to everybody. So if I wanted to be a good Israelite, what defined me as a good Israelite was that I lived according to the law and lived right by the law and then I needed the Pharisees. The Pharisees would be the ones that would instruct me. But not only did the, the law that separate the Israelites from other nations, but it also caused the separation within itself. And, and it was the separation that I referred to earlier, where on the one hand you had the Pharisees that were the pure the pure representatives, the pious ones, the ones that lived the law. And then you had the crowds, everybody else. That was sort of, they were Israelites, but they were lesser because they weren't as committed to the law. And the Pharisees would separate themselves, separate themselves certainly from other people and wouldn't mix with other nations. Even Hellenized Jews, people that didn't, wasn't originally Jews, but became Jews, they wouldn't mix with them. They, they would be separate from them. And then within their own nation and in their own people group, they would be separate from those that were, that were not as zealous for the law as they were. And so the, this group, and, and it tells us that there were at least about 6,000 of them during the time of Jesus. So there were many of them around. In Jerusalem, a lot of them. And they were representing and holding fast to the to traditions of the law and teaching and instructing everybody around that. So it's one of these people, this teacher of the law is now questioning Jesus. So we read the first question, they have an agreement. Second question, he now says to Jesus, but who is my neighbor? Now it's important. The reason he's asking Jesus this, as the scripture tells us, is to justify himself. What does that mean? And I spoke about that the other day when, in our previous series. It is our desire as human beings to justify ourselves, to be right, to be on the right side of things, to, to have a reason to claim authority and power. And this is what this man was doing. He was saying, I am right. And can you see the, the separation? He's saying, I'm right. The crowds, everybody else, the people Jesus is speaking to, they are not on the right side of things. In a sense, what he was saying is, I am saved. I am Good enough for eternal life. I am good enough to be included in the kingdom of God. Everybody else does not meet the standard. They are not the ones that are right. So he wanted to, he wanted to be in a position that whatever Jesus said would justify him, would reveal that he is right and everybody else should just be like him. And that's what he was looking for. Some standard that Jesus would say, and he was expecting that if Jesus was to be right, it would include him as being right. And everybody else wouldn't be right because he is the keeper of the law, representing living the standard of the law. And that's why he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, the trick of this question was how Jesus answered it. Because if Jesus said to the, the Pharisee, your neighbor is the poor, the Pharisee would have said, I agree. And that's why I give alms to the poor. We mustn't think that the Pharisee wouldn't have been, had a heart to help the poor because it's expected in the law. And as an expectation in the law of the Israelites that you help the, the poor, he would have certainly done that. And if Jesus said, that's, that's who your neighbor is, is the poor people, he would have said, yes, I agree with that because I, and that's why I give my alms to the poor. If Jesus said that your neighbor is the foreigner, he would have said, yes, I agree with that. And that's why I show kindness to the foreigner because the Torah teaches that. The Torah says I have to be kind to the foreigner, the alien. You know, I must practice justice towards the alien. If, if Jesus said the, the, your neighbor is whoever, he would have had a reason to say, yes, that's why I am included. I'm justified because I'm acting according to the law. And the law tells me that 
you know, I should behave in that way to somebody. And he would have been justified and he would have been right. And that's where Jesus now, again, shows his superior understanding and, and begins to turn the conversation. And he uses an instrument to change the whole tone and perspective of the conversation, as he so often did, that he uses a parable to answer the question of who is your neighbor. And I want to read the parable for you and then make a few comments on it. We know this parable so well, so I'm just going to read it for the, the five, six verses, that Luke 10, verse 30 to 35. In, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. The priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring an oil on oil and wine. And he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out the two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, what is a little challenging for us today is we don't really use parables in the way that it was used here. So we don't always understand how to read a parable and interpret it. And certainly, you know, so often what people make is one of the mistakes people make when they interpret a parable is they, they go into the details of the story and they want to add meaning to the detail. It's like there was once a, a sermon written about who's the donkey in the story and what is the meaning of the donkey. And when we start doing that, that's called an allegorical approach. We, we're starting to add to the story things that it, it doesn't really mean. A, a parable is, is an instrument that was used in that time for a specific purpose. And they also slightly vary from different parables to different parables. In this situation, the reason Jesus is using this parable is what he's doing is he's taking, he's using a real life event to draw the people that he is surrounded by and particularly this lawyer into the story and into this real life experience. What the lawyer was doing is the lawyer was having an, an ethical conversation, an abstract conversation. And Jesus now takes him and tells him this parable to make him part of the story, to say, we cannot have this discussion as, an, as a non-real event, as something that is hypothetical. We have to talk about this from the perspective of being part of the story. And what Jesus also does is he, he doesn't tell him a, or what Jesus is not doing is he's not giving him an object lesson. And that's often where we make the mistake. We read a parable like this and we think it's an object lesson. We think what he's saying to us is, is he's pointing to somebody in a story and says, if you, if you are like this person, then you are doing the right thing. Is don't be like this person, be like this person. Um, and certainly there's something of that that can be drawn but that's not the, the core of the, of the reason he's using a parable. What he's doing is he's, he's creating a shared experience. And, and he's drawing this, this lawyer into the story. And as I unpack a little bit, perhaps you'll understand a bit better what I'm, what I'm meaning. So Jesus tells a story of a real life event. He says, Some, somebody was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. We know it was a very dangerous road. No for the people that was listening to the story, no unexpected event that some robbers fell on him there that was evidently quite common for traveling that road. And so he tells a story. And in the story, there's, there's some main characters that we see. And, um, 
when he's telling the story to, the, to this lawyer, he's actually inviting this lawyer into the story. You see, because what the lawyer was doing is he was positioning himself as an outsider to the story. He was saying, I'm right. I don't need salvation. I don't need somebody to help me. But the others need somebody to help them. The others need to understand. I know what a good neighbor is. I know what it means to be a neighbor. The other people need to know. So he, he was stepping outside of the story and saying, I, I'm, I'm the judge in a sense. He's the, he's the one that's not part of this discussion that they're having because he's right. He's the one sitting outside as a righteous judge, judging everybody else's behavior in the story and how they should behave. And so when Jesus begins to tell the story, what Jesus does is he says, no, no, you're actually part of the story. And so when we read the story, there's a question that could be asked with the story is who do you identify with in this story? Or, and who should you identify with in the story? And it's so easy for us. When we read the story, we would probably do the same thing as what that teacher of the law would have wanted to do. And that is that immediately we want to identify ourselves with one of the people that is the potential savior in this situation. We recognize that the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan were in the positions of doing something that could help the situation, that could make the situation better. And therefore, our thoughts and our minds immediately go to the question of who am I in life? Am I like the Levi or the, or the priest? Or am I like the, the, the Good Samaritan? And we, th we, we think the point is that I should try and not be like the, the priest and the Levite. And I should be like the, um, the Good Samaritan. And, and, we, and we draw that lesson. We use it as an object lesson. But when we read the story, as it's uh, described by, to us by uh, a New Testament professor, uh, where's his name now? Sorry. Well, I don't know. Do I do this? Th Thomas G. Long. He, uh, he describes for us, um, and he says, we should actually identify with firstly in that story is the man in the ditch. And that was the point Jesus was trying to make to this lawyer when he said, once there was a man that traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho and he was befelled by robbers. Because the man immediately thought, he's the one that should, what is the right thing for him to do in that situation? Because he would do right. He's justified. He's the right person. He would do right. But what Jesus was saying, you And I, as people, not Jesus, but you and I, we as people, the first person we should identify with in that parable is that we are like the man in the ditch. We are in need of salvation. We are in need of help. We have been attacked along the road of life. And we have been injured. And we have been harmed. And we have been broken. And we are lying in a ditch. And we cannot save ourselves. So who do you identify with in this story? Are you a savior or are you a one that is in need of salvation? Because like I said earlier, the problem was the lawyer put himself in the position where he's, he's outside of this because he is right. Jesus was describing something to the others, not to him, 
because he was right. He didn't need salvation. But right there, Jesus cuts him down at the knees and, and takes him off his high horse and puts him in a ditch and says, you are a man in a ditch that needs salvation. But the problem is, if you don't think you need salvation, you cannot be saved because you will not call out for a savior. If you think you're the one that can offer salvation to others, if you think you're the one that can, everybody else is in the ditch and you are the one that has to come and rescue them out of the ditch, that you don't need salvation, then you're missing the point immediately. So in a sense, what Jesus was doing is answering the first question first. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You must recognize that you need to be saved, that you cannot inherit eternal life by anything you do in your own strength. You and I, we are the people in the ditch. So when we read this story, when, whenever you read this story, I want to ask you to identify first of all with the person that has been attacked, that needs help, that needs salvation. And so that when we read this parable as a shared experience, as a description of human reality and our shared experience, not as an object lesson that is outside of us, but that's something that we are part of, that we, that we read the story from the vantage point and that we're part of the story from the vantage point of the person that says, I am in need of help and salvation. I'm not the Levite or the priest that is separate that, that exactly what happened in the story where Jesus described it so well. He said, they were walking down the road and when they saw the man injured, they crossed over and they separated themselves from this man. He doesn't give a reason why they did that, but it would, it would be this kind of idea of they separated themselves because they were too important or their business and what they were about was too important at that point in time. They were doing that which was necessary and important and, and it, 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 there wasn't time for them or reason for them to attend to this unfortunate man. They weren't trying to be bad neighbors necessarily, but they were, they were in a position of what they were doing was too important. Now, it would be very nice to put ourselves in that position to say, you know, my life is so valuable and important in everything I do. But we have to first recognize our need of salvation. Our need for Jesus or somebody to come and help us and to lift us up and to put us on a donkey and to take us somewhere where we can receive care and where we can receive help. And that's why when Jesus in verse 36, he returns, he tells the man the parable and then he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell? into the hand of the robbers. Now that you've heard this parable and you're looking at it from the vantage point of the man in the ditch, that you identify most with the man in the ditch, who do you think was the most neighborly towards him? And the man therefore replied, the one who had mercy on him. That's the only answer he could have given. It's the only, one, only answer he could have given in that situation, the man who had mercy on him. As, as a one that needs mercy, who do you think helped in that situation? The man who, the good Samaritan, then Jesus replied, go and do likewise. And the point Jesus was making was, if you know that you needed mercy and have received mercy, go and give that mercy. If you know that you were in trouble and somebody came along 
and in generosity and in kindness reached out to you, picked you up, helped you. Now go and live that same way to others, your fellow travelers on the road that are also in need of mercy because you are not separate from them that they need mercy, but you don't need mercy. We all need mercy. We all need the generosity of heart. And in actual fact, the one who represents the good Samaritan in the story is Jesus that paid the price, that, that picked the person up out of the ditch and helped them and sorted them out. It is Jesus, not the religious system, because the religious system by definition separates and creates this law that says we are better and we need to be kept clean and we are separate and our justification is in the fact of how good we are and how we represent what is right and therefore we cannot mix with what is bad and it creates the separation where Jesus says, no, what I do is I show you how you are all in need of a savior. There's only one that is not in need of a savior and that's Jesus. And therefore he's the only one that can save. I can't save anybody because I need salvation. And when I understand that, then I approach life from a different place. I have received mercy, I can give mercy. I have received generosity, I can give generosity. And then I act in the same way as Jesus. Jesus is the good Samaritan. I am like the person in the ditch that needs salvation. But once I have received it, it becomes very important that I do the same to others, that I show that level of mercy and kindness and, and togetherness with other people. And that's the humility. Jesus didn't tell the story to say there is no right or wrong. There there, there is no, you know, there is no standard in the kingdom. No, he upheld the standard. He said there's a standard. But how you go about it and how you approach it is very different. Therefore, the scripture tells us we don't judge others because we know we will be judged. Because I'm not better than any other person. I didn't need Jesus less than so and so. I didn't need less salvation than everybody else. But once I'm saved and I am being saved, I'm in a position to offer Jesus to others. Not, not be Jesus in the sense that, you know, now I know what is right and I can save others. But I can welcome them into that place of saying, I have received mercy and grace. You can also receive mercy and grace. That's the, the difference between Jesus and this teacher of the law. Now I want to encourage us today to receive the mercy of Christ, to receive the forgiveness, the grace of Christ. And I wonder today, if you are listening to me, have you recognized your need of a savior? That no matter how hard you try, you cannot be good enough. You will not live up to God's standard. So what must you do to inherit eternal life? Is recognize your need of a savior. I need to be saved. And I'd love to pray with you today. So I want to give you an opportunity right now. I'm going to pray. And if you want to ask Jesus to be your Savior, won't you pray this prayer with me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we recognize that we are all falling short of your kingdom and of your righteousness. And we recognize that it is not possible for us to ever live up to your standard. 
But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and died for us so that we could be forgiven for our failures and that in you we can be restored and redeemed and brought to the place where we live in your righteousness and we can enter the kingdom of heaven because of what you did. So right now, Father, we ask you to forgive our sins, to become the Lord of our lives and to save us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer with, with me today, I want to invite you to just connect with one of our people. There's a comments in the comments. You can connect with somebody um, and just you know, tell that to them. If you're in a watch party, if you're with a group of people, tell them. I prayed that prayer today and let them pray with you and, and let us know there's things that we can do and help you and material we want to send you, so communicate with us. But then to those of us that have prayed that prayer and that have received the mercy of Christ and have recognized our need for salvation, I want to say, I want to encourage you, live the generosity of heart from what you have received. Be the ones that are generous in showing mercy to others. Don't separate yourself. Don't, don't go to the other side of the road. But where you see a need, you know, our, our saying is cross, across the street, across the globe, Cross the street and go and, and show generosity to people. Not because you're being their savior, but because you're recognizing I receive generosity and therefore I can give generosity. And in that way, we can live the spirit of Christ in this world. And faith promise is such a fantastic way to do that. So be part of faith promise. It's not the only way you show generosity, please. You know, it's not money you send and then that's taken care of. But it's part of how we live our generosity. It's a vital and it's a very important part. And it's a structured way that is, that like I spoke about last week, that is, that is organized and, and makes a huge difference. Our collective faith together. But be a person of generosity of heart. May the Lord bless you and thank you for joining me today. We just know that we love you and uh, just we pray for you. Lots of blessings.